0: This up, podcast right is aimed there. at the veteran community. One it one hopes one to recreate a conversation taking place in any NAFI any anywhere in the world right now. We want to combat so social isolation in by own. letting veterans feel part of this conversation. Some if you're easily offended, please switch off now. And if you want to see more, please subscribe to this channel and be part of the community. Hello everyone and welcome to Veterans in Crisis podcast. Uh, today we have Joseph Mitchum, uh, Joseph is a servant soldier still, but he's also an author, so he's going to be telling us all about his new book uh, later on. Thanks, Joseph. How Thanks are you doing? For over me. No Re- problem. Really there. good
1: to be back in Sunderland. Again. No
0: problem at all. I mean, we met uh, last May. I think it was last. It must have been last May after the season because uh, I played football at the stadium, and you came to that, didn't you? Yeah. Just to see me, obviously.
1: Yeah, and to support one of my soldiers that was
0: playing the match and oh, yeah. uh,
1: support the uh, Veterans in Crisis cause, which was. Uh,
0: uh, it was. It went really well. It was. Uh, it was sort of organised by Genesis uh, Security. Uh, security Genesis Insurance um, and Protection. And it went really well. I mean, we made made a decent sum of money. Got to play on the pitch. It, although I was only on the pitch for about fucking ten minutes, to be quite honest. <laughs> I think. I because I played twice that, that that end of that season, and uh, the first time we boot splitting off, and the second time I got injured in the warm up. So that's my career over. I think.
1: Yeah, better than me. I'm, uh, I'm not exactly on the, the football field. Yeah. More of a rugby guy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've, I've had to knock that on the head as well. Oh, yeah? So, so, yeah, I found out I had a stroke. so I, You had a stroke? I my boots. Yeah. I um, only found out about it, came back from Afghanistan. You know how you have to do your hearing test when you return? Mm-hmm. Um, failed the hearing test, so they sent me down to, to have my ear canals checked for cancer, um, which involved an MRI scan. And the MRI image came back, and they said your the canal's fine, but um, yeah, you've had a stroke at some time in your life.
0: Oh, really? uh, you, <clears throat> how did you not know that? It's obviously a very minor thing.
1: Yeah, well, apparently one in four of us has got a, a PFA, they call it. Oh
0: fuck! There's only three of us in this room. Yeah. <laughs> no, <it's me. laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> I tell, I'll tell. i be honest with you. When when the uh, when the advert comes on in the, I've got a daughter and a partner. When the advert comes on, it's like uh, one in three people's going to get cancer, one of us leaves the room. <laughs> <laughs> so it just gonna well, be one of yours. You know what I mean? Whoever's standing up moves out the room straight away, so it's not me.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if that happened while I was serving or um, before, because I had no symptoms or any, any, any idea it happened. Right. But when, when they said, oh, yeah, you had a stroke, I thought they'll, they'll show me the image, you know, it'll be some tiny little black mark or something. There's a whole, like, left side, of my brain's got this shadow over it. Right. Yeah. I don't know, like, what, what is a, a, a stroke? So it's where something blocks one of the the, the blood vessels in your brain. Uh, most commonly, it comes from having a hole in the heart, which um, I found out I'd had. You'd um, had, yeah. So I, I must have had the hole in the heart from birth. And what happens is when you when your body's under strain, that hole kind of opens up, and it's like a like having a hole in your exhaust; it loses pressure. So it right. probably explains why I don't do very good PFA time and <laughs> really struggle on the mile and a half. But um, yeah, that. That, that sort of blood escapes and it goes up, and instead of going through your lungs and being filtered before it goes around your body like normal blood flow would, um, some of that blood goes straight up into your brain. And if there happens to be the tiniest little blood clot in that blood, then um, yeah, it blocks one of those small canals in your brain and starves part of your brain of, of the oxygen.
0: Jesus, man You've been lucky, really, haven't you? Yeah. You've been lucky when things are like something, but you've been lucky as well. Probably lucky. You know? yeah. If any, if if people are listening and it sounds really windy, it's because the ERV is in the Frank suite, so right at the top. Um, the wind is really bad today, so I apologise if the sound sounds like that. But just think, what Frank had to put it with? <laughs> you know what I mean. So, um, if we start off, where were you born? Uh, born in Haverhill in Suffolk.
1: Um, so hospital in Cambridge, but yeah, brought up in um, Haverhill, small town, in um, is up in the corner of Suffolk near Bury St Edmunds, Newmarket, a lot of people right. heard of because of the racing. Um, but yeah, just a nice little town that was a bit of a London overspill. Uh, so I got what is described as a Combine Cockney accent. Oh, yeah. um, lo- lots of people moved after the war, or lots of people during the war um, were evacuated to, to East Anglia. Um, my grandparents on my mum's side were, were some of those people and then after the war they, um, they decided to get back there. Um, so there's loads of, sort of, Londoners moved out into, to sort of the, the sort of farming villages and, and small towns. So
0: yeah. what was it like growing up there then?
1: Um, yeah, it's nice, um, first few years was in a, a little village called Keddington, um, and then my parents split up when I was about four, uh, so moved into Haverhill, into a sort of council house, council house sort of scenario, and um, just grew up there with my little brother. Um, my mum, and then stepdad came along, and he's been with my mum since.
0: Right. It's nice when you live in the countryside type, isn't it, though? So, especially, I mean, people who join the army, that's, that's, you, nice. that's what you love, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I obviously lived in, lived in Sunderland yeah. as a child, but the housing estate I lived in when I was a young child was brand new, so it was all fields and everything round there, yeah. so it was just out first thing in the morning, didn't come back till the lights come on it, and on the street lights. Oh, yeah. your mum shouted in for your tea, you know what I mean? It was great. I mean, you, kids can't do that now, can they? No. And, uh, it's just a shame, but...
1: Yeah, we're quite lucky where we live at the moment in Yarm. Uh, we, we're we right on the outside of the town, so there's plenty of... Uh, we're walking distance from the fields, right on right a park.
0: So what's Yarm like? I mean, we have uh grand led bit of uh, a southern footballer. He used to play for Middlesbrough. and he lives down there as well. Yeah, it's
1: beautiful. I'm I uh I actually came up to Yarm for a weekend with my civvy mates before I joined the army when I was 18, 19. Um and Yarm always used to win uh, like the best high street to go for a drink uh, in the FHM magazine. All right. So a load of my mates went oh, all right, we'll do New Year's Eve there, so we we booked up for a hotel,
0: got tickets to the Tall Trees. Tall Trees where I used to go now?
1: And um yeah, so 210 miles up the road for a night out. All right.
0: Um, what what year was that when you went to Tall Trees?
1: Oh, it must have been
0: 95 All right. 96 i might be now this <laughs> right. right. it's, it's a good place
1: yeah it's and then place. as funny enough i one of my jobs with the army was the i was the adjutant of uh, 34 signal regiment in brambles farm uh, down in borough and um they no no accommodation in the officers mess being you know, a reserve units so they put me into rented accommodation in yarm and uh, as soon as i went to go and look for my flat I was like, I recognise this place, been here before. And, uh, yeah, I kind of had that feeling when I first settled in that that's where I was going to end up. Right. Sure enough, come to the end of my career, innocent family, wife and two kids, in Yarm, and uh, that's where I am.
0: Nice one, nice one. So what what do you uh, think made you join the forces? Did you have family? Were your family in the forces?
1: No, I, both grandparents, great-grandfathers were, were army for, for the war. Um Apart from that, no, not at all, I just had it, like, a lot of the things I do, did it on a whim. I tend to get an idea and think, right, I'm going to do that, and I go off, that's what I do. Yeah. Um, initially, I tried in 19, uh, yeah, say so about 1997, uh, when I was 19. Um, I failed the medical, had shin splints, would, would have done all the tests fine, but when it came to the medical interview, they, they said, any problems? And I said, well, I get shin splints occasionally. And uh, they said, "Oh, you can't come in. Then you have to come back in six months or a year." So knocked it on the head. Carried on rubbish jobs in Civic Street, factory work, and sort of car washing that sort of thing. Um, then got a girlfriend, uh, so that sort of delayed the idea of going back in. And then that girlfriend decided she was going to go and work in Europe in the holiday camps. So I thought, "I'm going to go to the army." Um, got introduced to a guy that had just passed out into free para. He uh, was doing a Satisfied Soldier at the recruiting office. Um, and he went, don't go, these hat units going to be airborne. Go join a para. it's the only thing you want to do. And, and I, had, I had fairly good maths and English and scored high on the aptitude test, but I um, couldn't be convinced to do signals or engineers. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going para, and that's it. So, uh, yeah, went and joined. Uh, went to one para after training. Um, had my basic A-levels, two E's worst possible A levels you can get, um, and that's the minimum requirement for getting to Sandhurst. So uh, chain of command at one power said, get yourself off to Sandhurst see if you can get in there. So uh end up as a signals officer for most of my career.
0: All right. Well so did you did you do anything when you were in the powers like did you serve anywhere then before you went to the yeah, to well, become I, an officer?
1: I joined a battalion when it was still in Aldershot. um and then from Aldershot, we did Three weeks on Sierra Leone or Palliser. Uh so that was most of the battalion, less A Company here in Jamaica. Uh, so we did three months, uh, sorry, three weeks of um, getting British passport hold- holders and those with the right to leave out and uh, give the West Side Boys a bit of a bloody nose. Mm. Um, and then came came back and then we moved to Dover. Um, I can't remember how long the gap was, but then there was that Royal Irish Rangers rescue. Mm-hmm and A Company had just come back from where they'd been. They'd been in Jamaica, and because they'd had lots of um, live firing on the ranges, they were selected to go off and back up the SAS for the rescue. Um, I think that had a lot to do with one power being the unit that was put forward to be the Special Forces Support Group, (SFSG) as it is now. Um, And the guys did a great job there.
0: Mm -hmm. I I met someone who was... uh yeah, uh, Irish, you know, Irish. Like I did some stuff at the university. Like, tell us some terrible tales about that. Like, yeah, terrible, like horrendous, terrible. Like I mean, he, he suffered really badly through it, you know. And you, when you read about things, it's completely different when someone tells you, you know, it was actually there. Yeah, you know, because it, it, when you read it off printed, you think I ah, did that happen, you know what I mean? But but somebody actually telling you it when it was there, like, yeah. you know, the hairs on the back of me, it was standing up. like it was so. Anyway So From there uh, You went to Sandhurst Don't you? Yeah it did The year Which Was a fantastic
1: Experience um, After doing basic Training for the Barrers, um It was a, wouldn't call it A holiday park But it was much More relaxed mm. Much more But also intense In a different way um, Obviously a lot More taxing on the Brain um, And I decided I want To get into Boxing as well I couldn't get into The one power Boxing team Um yeah, a bit of a um, sort of a closed group, and had to be proper nails to get yeah. into that. Um, but Sandhurst, I put myself forward and got into the boxing training, uh, keep my fitness up as well as doing all the sort of mill skills, fitness, and tabbing. Um, yeah, boxing, boxing was probably about the fittest I've been.
0: I did the same when I when I was in uh, one li. I joined the boxing team in Deptford, and that's the fittest I was then. Really. Yeah. But I, I said earlier on a, a, a previous podcast, I sort of did it as a bit of a blag because I thought it would be easy. And I <laughs> ended up doing an hour before work and an hour after work, yeah. as well as everything else, you know. So it wasn't a blag. But I enjoyed it, you know. And I, I won my fight and it was good. Like, it's a, it's a good thing, boxing. You know, it's good. Not getting punched in the face is that good, Like, but it uh, learns you a lot of skills, doesn't yeah. it? A, a lot of, like, um, life skills, Bizarrely, because it's just a sport, but it's, it learns you a lot. Like you yeah, know, so and a lot he, of stuff you can do on your own. You know, yeah, discipline, mm-hmm. discipline, um, mind, mind things. You know, you've got to do things in a specific way. You know, and if you don't, you're gonna get smacked on. Right? So yeah. that's a good thing to take in life anyway. Not
1: yeah, I um, yeah, still got a fairly straight nose. I had five heavyweight fights. All right, won all of them.
0: Did you? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my uh, cheek to down and <laughs> yeah.
1: that. Uh, yeah, The pressure was always on as an officer boxing. Um, sand, the Santos fight, not so much, being an mm. officer cadet.
0: Um, but yeah, when so it, did you fight uh, normal ranks like when you were officer? Bo- yeah, did yeah.
1: you? Yeah, I fought full screw sergeant. Um, then yeah, a couple of a couple. I right. I fought private from one para. That was a. Uh,
0: Oh, okay. An anomaly. <laughs>
1: they, uh, two two signal regiment in York. They usually host a um, a charity boxing night, and um, yeah, fighters come from all over the country. And, and one para up their heavyweight to fight me. Um, yeah, so I, I probably should have lost that one. He was way better than me, oh. and I think he wanted to get over in the first round. And he came at me with just raining punches, and i had my guard up on my forehead, and um, I thought I've either got clattering one or that's going to be curtains in about a minute so uh, I just waited for a pause, step back and smashed him on the chin and he went down oh, <laughs>
0: hi. looking for you there <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and uh, that, that
1: he got back up he was fine and, but he'd sort of taken the wind out of his sails um, yeah, and I, I kind of bossed him on from there
0: nice one so what 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 do you think was the sort of best part of being an officer obviously because I was never an officer so
1: um I think it's being able to look after your blokes, and that's still the case now. Um, The biggest responsibility I think you have in an officer is reporting to or the the MS side, we call it, military secretaries, looking after people's careers. So the biggest part of that is probably the report at the end of the year, the the SJAR report. Um, But as well as that, it's the career management between those reports. So setting their objectives at the start of the year, making sure they know what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, getting them on the courses they need to be eligible for promotion. Um, if, uh, I'm guessing a lot of soldiers that come out before their time is probably because they haven't had proper MS support from their chain of command. So mm. I always try and make that the biggest priority I have, and then everything after that is a bonus.
0: So how old were you when you became an officer? Uh, 24,
1: 25. And how old are you now? 43.
0: So uh, so you've been in the army what? Yeah, just over 20 years, 20 right. years. And then uh, are you plans to stay?
1: Um, well I'm in post at the moment for another two years um, And then after that there may be other jobs come up mm. uh, And it'll depend what I want to do civilian wise Depends on how writing books How goes.
0: your books go yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> You might have just sitting in the south of France writing books won't you? Yeah, in, in the warm weather
1: but it works well as a reservist um, because I can do as many days, in certain positions you can do as many days as you want. And as long as there's sort of valid work to be done, I can't just sit around signing in mm. and not get anything done. As so long as I'm doing something worthwhile I can do as many days, up to 207 as I want. However if, say I want to be writing four days a week, I can drop that down and do two days a week in the office or a day in the week in the office. Um and again, it depends on what role I go into after this one. If if it's a really intensive job where they need someone that's doing almost full days, then that wouldn't work so well with a, a full time sort of book schedule. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so yeah, it works well at the moment; works perfectly in fact.
0: What do you think um, if you had to go back? When you were, I was going to say servant soldier. When you were not an officer, regular, yes, or when, a, when you when you, rank. oh the rank guy. I was trying, I was trying to, you know, I'm trying to be politically correct and just say it. So when you weren't an officer, what do you reckon was the best parts parts of your career? Uh,
1: it was a very brief. Obviously, basic training was a big chunk of that. Um, camaraderie in that platoon, uh, six four eight platoon. Uh, for the, the paras that know. Um, fantastic, seeing people get through, uh, other people fall by the wayside and seeing why they fell by the wayside. Um I say, I, I didn't find it easy by any means. One of the biggest, stronger guys, but like I say, with a hole in the heart trying to do peak mm. company and all those tests, I didn't realise why. I thought I was just lazy. Nugget. Nugget. <laughs> useless. Uh, so no matter how hard I trained, I always found it really, really hard and having a hole in the heart. Not having that back pressure on oh. the blood. It explains why I struggled on events like the log, the, the two-miler, the, the shorter, faster events. Um, but with that sort of base level of fitness, anything like the 20-miler, the 10-miler even, not, not a problem. I've got that because I've worked so hard at my fitness because I have to. Mm. Um,
0: what was P Company like? Oh, hell. Was it?
1: Yeah. I've, I've done a, quite a lot of physical challenges, and I reckon that's still the hardest. Is it? Yeah, definitely.
0: So which part are you at, or just all of it?
1: um log race and stretcher race um the train asium and the milling I, I would have done that all day long mm. uh, for fun um but yeah those they, they sort of real high intensity fast-paced events uh, were really what kills me
0: no i had a go at the uh, what did you call it the not the high train asium uh, i had a go at that like when i i, I don't know what i was doing I don't all the shot when i was in but uh, I had a go of that, and I like that. I like that sort of yeah. stuff. I'm not scared of heights or anything, you know. But uh, logs, not man. Me being on a dwarf, obviously, it comes at the front. <laughs> it's fucking uncomfortable, man. It's, it's like that. You know what I mean? All the weight on top of it is like, it's, it's horrendous. Unless it would get in the middle and go like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not really holding it. You're right, I'm a stretcher, right? <laughs> I'm just not holding it, you know what I mean? <laughs> All right, so, I mean, when I was a kid, in the eighties, early eighties, there was a show about the Paras. Yeah, I've seen. Aye, uh, and uh I watched that religiously. Like, and I thought, like, I I would like to join the Paras. That's what I thought at that time. Um, and it was just when I went to the Careers Office, it must have been a light infantry Careers bloke, just like the normally, you know, whatever they are, that's what you got to join. You <laughs> know what I mean? And uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I would have managed in the Paras or not, you know, but would have been. Yeah, it any,
1: any size or shape would. Mm. Yeah, that's not really the determinant. It's all about the heart. Yeah. Fucking the
0: hell, part. you had a hole and you was one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. did you, that, your hole in the heart, was that diagnosed when you were in? Mm. So, did they not say you had to get out?
1: No, that, that came up, um, yeah, I say it was after the the uh, stroke diagnosis right. and the further investigations. Why has why he had a stroke? Um... Oh, most likely hole in the heart, so they check. My, I went, went for the check for the hole in the heart. They have to put this thing down your throat, and they, you know, like the cardiogram oh. you, you, when you're ultrasound for a baby. They do the same thing, but from inside your your throat, um, and they because they, it's the closest they can get to the heart. So they they sent me this letter saying, "Yeah, turn up at this time, no eating three hours before." So like three hours and one minute before, I was throwing down
0: <laughs> as, much as, you can, you?
1: as much as I could. Anyway, they put this thing down, and I was like, half out. I don't know if it was gas or drug whatever, whatever drug it was that sort of put me off to sleep. And I've got vague recollections of just throwing up all over this room. Oh, I tried. Right. <laughs> they just about got enough imagery in my heart before I puked
0: up all over the place. <laughs> They're horrible. But just a, oh. Even the thought of it. Like, down top, it's, <laughs> no, it's not for me, that way. <laughs> so you, um, when, you, when you were an officer and you went to the signals...
1: Yeah, I decided the Paras was my sort of physical challenge. Mm. And so I thought something a bit more cerebral. So obviously the, the Sandhurst pushed me a little bit. Um, got through that by the skin of my teeth. And then I, I looked at a technical core. Um, I had I got my options down to signals and engineers um, in, by the, I think the middle of the second term. So about halfway through my time. Um and then it came to the interview process. I had my signals interview first and I passed that, told the provision you got a place. Um and then I kinda treated the engineers interview as a well, I've got signals, why 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 should I come to you? Mm. And they went, Well, if you got signals, sounds like you're happy with that. Off you go and so that that was that as a fairly short interview.
0: So ex- <laughs> I really sure that's two minutes <laughs> we had to get out. Um you think you are. Do you want uh, <laughs> to explain just for anyone who's not military and uh, watching? Because we do get people who are not military. Um, just exactly what the signals do. Yeah. So the Royal
1: Signals are the the communications arm of the of the army. Um, they obviously we have radios. Every, every unit pretty much has radios, so the troops can talk to each other at sort of unit level. Um, some cap badges have rear link detachments, which can be provided by Royal Signals, um, normally headed up by a sergeant, and that is the sort of lower level of what we do in terms of getting the Sort of trunk communications back into the higher formation, but really for us it's at brigade and divisional level uh, communications. So high capacity data networks. We're, they say we're like the British Telecom of.
0: Oh yeah, that's what I was going to describe army. it like. Yeah, British Telecom. Um,
1: and even more so in the in the reserves, so we have eighty one Signal Squadron that really is the BT of the army because mm. it's all British Telecom uh, installation technicians and BT people doing the army reserves. And they'll go off on two-week camps every year and fully fit out a a headquarters or some sort of big comms project like that.
0: So you were in the regulars, though. So how long were you in the regulars before you went into the reserves?
1: Uh, As a a signals officer, 14 and a half years. So I got got to my officer's pension point um, just as my intermediate commission was about to run out. And because of the wife and kids, I decided not to extend or apply Mm. apply to extend it just ran out naturally, I hit my pension and uh yeah, came up this lovely Sunderland to work.
0: Oh, God, right, fucking hell, it's a brilliant place man. It's a bit windy at the minute. like Yeah. Um in <laughs> your fourteen years what was your standout moment? Do you think or you stand out I always like to ask where people were posted because you normally get a decent story out of someone where they were posted, you know. Yeah, best
1: best posting for me was two one six Parachute Signal Squadron. That that was the fantastic um at the best of both worlds, they had the technical, keen soldiers of the signals who were also paratrained, or a lot of them were paratrained. Um, so the time I got to spend with the, the airborne signallers is is something else. Um, and I go back, every year I can, I go back to the K-Fort reunion down near Grantham. Um, we get looked after by the villagers. Uh, back in World War II, uh, K-Fort was where the airborne signalers from 1 and 6 divs formed up. And because of the long planning timelines, they end up staying around that village for weeks and weeks. Um, back, barracks wasn't big enough, so some of the soldiers end up living uh, with the villagers, um, and we've had that connection going all the way back. Uh, so, if, I think the first reunion was about 1981, but every year since then, we've we've tried to jump in to the DZ that's still there on the Thursday and the, also oh, the Friday and the Saturday. Uh, the Friday night's just a huge session. Um, some some people go off and they go to a, a special dinner for old villagers, um, squadron members and veterans. And then the Saturday is a huge big fete. They have the Paralob in in the morning. Um, squadron football team plays the village football team. Um, really big family fun occasion. I think the Wagon and Horses pub makes more in that weekend than it does for about six months of the year. Um, yeah, it's just a, just a gleaming weekend to catch up with old mates.
0: What about your actual, um, like, say, country or operation or anything? What would what, what you think would be a standout?
1: Yeah, again, probably with 2 and um, 6, Op Herrick 4, 2006. And um, that was the. I, I was detached from the squadron, thank God, because I would have been the nighttime ops officer at the 16th Brigade Headquarters, which would have been toilet. So um, I was detached to go off with. Um, the, the command group from 7RHA or 7PARA as some people yeah. like to call it and um, so we, we mentored we were the first omelet operational mentor and liaison team to, to work with the Afghan National Army taken over from American Reservists who, who had a small staff there as the soldiers started coming from their training and basically built a whole brigade um, from I think there's less than a battalion's worth uh, when we arrived um, and through that tour uh, as they were sort of trained up and become competent, we started taking them out on the on the ground in platoon size strength with a couple of our mentors. Um, and they were going out to the places like the big names everyone knows now, Sangin, Kajaki, Musakala, all those kinds of sort of areas. The platoon would end up inevitably getting into a... stirring up, stir, stir, stirring up a hornet's nest with the Taliban. Uh, they'd send out a couple of Chinooks full of free para and blitz the place and then establish um, a sort of a forward oper- operating base. Um, so, yeah, mentoring those those soldiers, and then I, I went up on a big convoy. We took a load of vehicles up to Sangin, to Fob Robinson, uh, and while I was up there, we, we ended up going out on the ground to try and track down a, a lost uh, UAV, and um, we ended up getting a Taliban ambush on the way back in from that. Um, and that was the kind of moment... You know, a lot of people join the army mm. to see if they've got the guts yeah. to to do stuff, and that that was my time where I sort of proved myself that I was a good soldier. Mm. Um, so that that is the big standout memory.
0: That is the reason people join the army, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it. it sounds mental, doesn't it? <laughs> but that is the reason that like, you know you want something like that to happen, and it, it's scary when it happens. But you know, the I don't know. It's a, I don't know what the feeling you would describe the feeling, but it's it's scary, but it's exciting, and uh, you know, and you, for some reason you fucking laugh. <laughs> it's obviously nerves, you know, but when anything's happened to me, I, I I just laughed at it. Yeah, you know, and luckily I'm still here. So, so when you left to when you left the regulars in uh, the reserves, what was that transition like? Was it just an easy thing for you, or?
1: Yeah, it's fairly straightforward for me because I'd, I'd gone from a staff job at 11 Signal Brigade um, and part of my job, because I was, I don't know if you know about Op Fortify, which was the regular army's um, support to recruiting the reserves. Right. So it's basically my job for the, my last two years to recruit reserve units. So it would have been a bit difficult for me to get to the end and say, I'm not joining mm. <laughs> after plugging it for, for two years. So. Yeah. And because of my experience with 34 Signal Regiment... Um, go into the surviving squadron from that unit I knew pretty much everyone there already um, and it was very much part-time when I first started like I say I, I came straight into a job in Sunderland very lucky through my resettlement I must have applied for about 25 jobs I only had one interview and that was with Sunderland council who were about to put the tall ships event yeah uh, planning process on underway and um, so I worked on that project for three years fantastic time it was like the most interesting staff job i could have done in the army probably more travel than um i had with the army as well uh, because in the build-up you have to go and represent sunderland at all the the events um with sail training international um yeah so i worked on that I had a great great little team there um a couple of the names of that team appear in the book Aye. yeah um and it was it was phenomenal the event did so much for the city um, I don't know what proportion of your listeners will be from Sunderland but that event it was it cost a lot of money There's a bit of negative press about how
0: much oh, it cost it's always negative press, yeah. it doesn't matter what happens Go, people mourn that note that happens yeah. people mourn when something happens and it costs money yeah. you know, there's always going to be people mourn I've it, worked that out like yeah, <laughs> it, it
1: brought in millions and millions for the local mm. economy but much more than that the, the project put about 175 kids from Sunderland on those tall ships who had the time of their life and a lot of those kids would have been thinking, oh, no, no one's going to invest in me, no one's going yeah. to let me do anything like that. They get on these ships and they come back and they they like change people. It's it's the classic, oh, he's been in the army for five weeks and now he irons his clothes and tidies yeah. his bedroom. And it's, yeah. it's exactly that. It's like a condensed version of your first five weeks of training, going away on that ship, being given a bit of responsibility, being able to steer a like, 400-ton ship. Yeah. Um, and you come back and you open your eyes, you realise... People will invest in me, and there are opportunities. Uh, it's like the classic, most undersubscribed course in the army is the Apache helicopter course, because who's going to let the sig Nuts go and fly an mm. Apache? Well, well, people don't apply because they don't think they'll be allowed to. Um, so yeah, people just need to grasp the opportunities.
0: Mm. I think that was a was a really good thing for the city. I went down a couple. I, I was run run along the uh, the riverside all the time. And I went down a couple of times like, when the weather was nice. I think one day the weather was shit, but the rest of the time it was really nice. And it, it brings people into the city. I'm all for everything that happens in Sunderland. Or anything that's good or, or boosts its uh, sort of standing, you know. That's why with Vicks, I'm hoping Vicks will be the sort of thing that everywhere in the country looks at and think that's the way it should be done. That's my dream, you know. Yeah. It came from Sunderland to start with. Like, very periodic, the Sunderland night, to be honest
1: yeah it's brilliant yeah.
0: what you've done here. Oh, cheers man, cheers. And I've,
1: I've done a lot of research into Sunderland as well because we had to look at what the event was what we're selling. Uh, it's not just the case of come along and buy some sweets on the on the oh. quayside and look at the boats. It's what's what's in the history, what's what's here, why do people want to come to Sunderland. Um and that with the the 2021 bid for culture. Um there's just so much here the um all the history of the glass and the the keys and um, Sunderland Maritime Heritage, all the restoration work they're mm. doing there, all the little projects that are going on. Um, the councillors are all up for doing good stuff for their communities. Really good to see.
0: Well, I, 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 you know, people like the council off, but they've only been good to me. You know, I, I, I speak as I find, and people have been good to us, so you know, I'm not going to knock them for it. You know, just because me fucking bin doesn't get empty <laughs> to once a fortnight, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's the more important things to me, you know. And, and if Sunderland can stand out. Great, because all my childhood, everything was all about Newcastle. You know, when the shipyards and the pits closed, like they got the metro, and it didn't fucking come to Sunderland. You know what I mean? <laughs> all that money went in the metro for them. It's still down, does it? Yeah, it does now. I <laughs> you know, it's, it, honestly, it, everything went in Newcastle. And it's always talked about. You know, so any if you ever see anything about the North East, it's always them bridges across the town, Always, you know what I mean? But hopefully, you know, we can we can have a bit of that you know, and that's what I hope anyway and the Wearmouth Bridge is much nicer oh, I it hate this it's fucking shade through there mate. <laughs> shade <through. laughs> so um when you're in the reservists do you get much to do much travel
1: yeah I've been away a few times done um, exercise Lion Star went to Cyprus for two weeks last last year uh, we did a battlefield study went to Jersey didn't realise there were battlefield studies on Jersey oh. uh, but it, it The Germans invested about 10% of their defenses uh, resources in Jersey, thinking that would be the first place we'd go. We just bypassed it and it meant the rest of Europe was defended less heavily. Um, So we did did that for, it was going to be a five or six day tour, uh, but somehow the staff sergeant that organised it managed to blag us (laughs) tickets across to get to um, Normandy for the 6th of June, which is like paratroopers, Mm. like Mecca is to get to Peggy Bridge on... Six of June um, so I achieved that we went to the Merville Battery um, minibus piled in but I saw two of my members from the Parachute Regiment Association that had just jumped in and were making the way back to the bridge which was where their campsite was um, so I just cabbed a lift with them and, and w- went off and uh,
0: enjoyed a bit of airborne on the, no, on the bridge I at the Pegasus Bridge and that, you know, it's, it's a piece of history that's, that everyone knows about really isn't it yeah I like I watch a lot of football unfortunately I support Sunderland but um you know, I was just there's a there's a team in the that had the Pegasus thing up and I, that was just the other day my mate was showing us that picture, you know, so it's amazing, like. Um if we went on uh did when did you start writing books? Um I'd been doing I'd
1: use yeah, you, know, you get your enhanced learning credits yeah. um, from the army. Well I wanted to use up and I had a two year tour in Saudi Arabia so I started um started doing a business degree, just use my own hands, learning credits up and give me something to do. Um, hadn't really figured that I'd need to carry that on for another four years after the Saudi tour. Um worked out fine for my last job at eleven Brigade, so I was four nights in the officers' mess and nothing to do, so uh, cracked out a good good middle year. And then the last one I had to do while I was doing the tall ships job, so commuting up and down sort of forty miles every day and um and had wife and two kids distracting me <laughs> in the nicest possible way.
0: Oh, they're not watching this one, you can call them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I was basically doing about 20 hours of extra work on the laptop a week. And then when I finished my degree, I um, had about a six-month break. But then I had this idea, watching news reports about the London attacks, um, and every, every, every time they said, oh, the." The perpetrators were known to the authorities and they were recorded on the UK terror watch list. And I just thought, imagine if you could get hold of that watch list. What would you do with it as a squaddy? Mm. You you'd, you'd go and hunt them down, wouldn't you? No. So I come up with the idea for the book. Um, and it was I remember exactly it was the 26th of May 2017 because it was the same night as the La Grande bombing in Manchester. So um, I'd written about 500 words and notes and I'd come up with the idea and the structure of the story. And then I turned on the TV and on the news, there's bomb gone off. I was like, Jesus Christ, another one. Um, so that sort of spurred me on to carry on writing it. Uh, and in fact, the the first chapter has a few parallels to the Ariel Grande bombing, but um, it was almost identical um, because I wrote it retrospectively. I've done about the first five chapters. I thought it needs a scene setter. So I wrote, wrote it basically the same sort of event, but in Birmingham, at Birmingham Marina, mm. Um, and my wife read the first draft and I finished it months and months later and she said oh, it's too, too similar you're going to have to cut that so I had to rewrite the whole of the first chapter and it, it went from being a stadium or an arena concert to like a
0: kids festival you know in a park somewhere you thought my wife's a bit critical of you yeah. putting all that grafting for you <laughs> all you wanted is to say oh, it's alright man yeah. no it's spot on that uh, well, I can always rely on it. You. <laughs> put Absolutely. your feet back on the ground Aye. Yeah. And you want to keep on the right
1: side of her if you're going to do the Great, great <coughs> North Run again.
0: No, she, I'm, I'm never doing the Great North Run again. No chance.
1: She's done the medical tent for that uh, since she was a junior doctor about 15 years ago. She's done it every year.
0: Um, well, I, I I did it once. I'm never, I never. I would never do it again. I'm running a marathon. Yeah. Right? I'm running Amsterdam Marathon. Fucking knows why, but <laughs> I'm doing that. But I would never do the Great North Run again. No chance. No way. But uh, a funny story about the medical tents. So I've never done a, a a run like that before, ever. And I never trained or anything. And then everyone's giving you sweets and all that. And then there was loads of like medics and it looked like that like loads of jellies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and a fucking I'm not joking, yeah. I went to get some and it was fucking Vaseline. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> luckily, I never had it because <laughs> I couldn't get a drink anyway. And I would have been, out, you know. And then when I'd finished and my nipples were bleeding, which I've still got hard nipples now for all these months <laughs> yeah. later, um, I, I realised I was to rub on now. Yeah, see, I'm not now. I know about it now. <laughs> but I, I'm gonna wear bra when I do the marathon. I definitely. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of be bleeding again, like it's not good. I
1: oh, did the um, the marathon de Sabla. Um, in Morocco, the
0: is that in the desert? For yeah, 100, right? 150 miles in. Jesus. Like the,
1: the six stages over seven days. So the long, long stage in the middle was 815 and
0: a half k. Um, so you have to get, carry your own water as well.
1: Uh, you get issued water every, well every every time you arrive at a, che- at a checkpoint, you get given a liter and a half bottle. And when you finish a stage, you get given four and a half liters, so three bottles. Um, and you get plenty before the race starts. But yeah, last year, right?
0: I'm thinking, what am I going to do? That must have been—is that the hardest thing you've ever done? Uh,
1: again, I compare that to P company. I always say right. P company was harder because with me trying to yeah. get speed, whereas there was no pressure on that. I, w- I wanted to do well. I wanted to come in the top half, but that was that was only myself-induced pressure. And even I, kn- I know I was going to do that fairly okay because I've been training. Mm. I Cheated really. I lived in Saudi Arabia for eight months. Right. And was training in the desert every weekend. Most people have to get into some sort of pressure
0: thing
1: and do treadmill running yeah. in artificial heat. But I'd, I'd had the, the blessing of being in Saudi.
0: So so how did you train for that? Like, I'm asking you this way right, because I asked somebody about training for a marathon and they went, yeah, yeah, you should run two marathons before you do that marathon. Like, as training, I haven't got time to do that. You know what I mean? (laughs) I was just thinking, like, I'll just run a little bit before I do it. So I'm trying to... I've managed to get up to... I think I've been training for a month now, and I'm up to six miles. And the idea, in my mind, would be just to keep going up a mile every week and then maybe, I think maybe get a 20-mile and then run 20-mile maybe a couple of times, but then, name all than that. I don't say... I don't. I mean, I might be totally wrong with all this, but I don't want to say the point in running a marathon... Before I run the marathon yeah. where where uh, it's a proper one, you know, I don't know what's your thoughts on that if you've got any advice, please send it my Because
1: like, yeah, I think you just gotta it depends on how much time you got free. I was quite lucky in yeah. saudi Arabia like, the the work routine was sort of fairly shortish hours because of the heat got so much in the afternoons that the Saudis weren't working, um so I did what u k sort of side work I had to do, um but it's fairly late start, so I could get out before the sun was up and and do it few sessions. The real, real limiting factor was the space because doing laps of a, a compound mm. which is only about a mile and a half around uh, gets pretty soul destroying when you try and do long distances.
0: So how far would you have run in a training?
1: Um, in in camp I'd probably do sort of 10k right. 15k. Um, then at weekends it'd just be going out and finding routes around um, in the desert just parking up randomly and heading off into the U. So
0: 20, 10, 10 mile, 20 mile, what?
1: Yeah, we did, um, I, I was training with a project manager from BAE Systems. Um, he was like elite category, so however far I was running, he was running laps around me. Mm. Um, um, but I think we, we were doing like a marathon in a day, but sort of my steady pace. Um, and then we got to test all the camping equipment and kit. And because I, I was blogging, everything I was doing, the blog stood online, is quite quite a good reading You have to
0: tell us after, don't
1: um, But I was... Um, yeah, so I was. I was writing up all the kit I was using, how I was saving weight, what to look for in the sand, footprint patterns, where, to identify soft and hard sand for better grip. Anyway, I tested this sleeping bag, which weighed next to nothing, but it was really thin, but it was only 25 quid. And uh, I tested it in the desert, fine, perfect. Uh, so I wrote the blog, blog article. A of the guys that I ended up sharing a tent with bought the same um, sleeping bag. It was freezing cold in Morocco, that's... nothing like the Saudi desert. It was ice cold. Was... We were in these rubbish sleeping bags, absolutely gibbering. The, the scabby like carpets that they put in the bottom of the bivouacs, we were having to fold those over, like all fleas and camel hair and all like, falling off on us. But, but that's what we're doing to keep. <laughs>
0: and yeah, yeah. didn't bother sending that blog over right? <laughs> with, with your advice. <laughs> 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 so doing that man i mean that that blows me mind i mean i've picked uh, amsterdam marathon It's two reasons i used to smoke a lot of weed right but it's 10 years since i stopped so i thought do it there but the other reason and the real reason was because it's fucking flat and i have <laughs> to no. the great off front i thought i didn't want any banks in it so i'm hoping that plays to my strength of just running flat you know and I, and i I'd be lying if I I said I wasn't worried about doing it, you know. I mean, I have these ideas, but like yourself, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And I started, I did that 5, couch to 5k. Yeah. So I did that, I did, uh, what was it called, park run. Did park run three times, and I thought, "Ah, I did that all right. So I did the 10k, knee train, just did the 10k. And I thought, oh, well, next year I'll do a half marathon. So I did that, that was all right. And then I thought, I'll do the green off run. And then... The natural thing was just to keep doubling it, and I thought, All right, right, I'll do a marathon. Yeah, give okay, it a year or so, you'll be on the marathon this Fuck, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably never run again after this marathon. Like, because now I'm starting to, like, just the training. People keep, I don't have to just wind this up, but they keep telling us I've got to do all this stuff and the amount of time you're taking. Mm. I read a blog the other day of a, a marathon thing, and it was saying, Oh, you haven't really got time to do it, but you should be spending five, six hours a week on your thing. And, like, I do, do stuff every night. Mm-hmm. But I'm got like five hours to spare, you know? I'm yeah. busy all the time.
1: So like you're saying about doubling it up. When I was in Qatar, I went away as a troop commander, uh, as a junior officer, did a few months in Qatar. And I I wanted to get better, better abs. I wanted a six pack. So uh, I started doing one big ab session every week and it would go on for about an hour. And I'd start the the training session with the maximum PFA sit-ups I could do, like the army test sit-ups. And... Um, so after about, well, I started with about 40 on the first set, 60, weeks go by, 100, 150, 200. By the end of the three months, I, I could do 1,000 in one set. And then every time I went away after that, so I went off to Jamaica, I did Afghanistan, um, and I, I'd get up to the 1,000 sit-ups. When I went out on Herrick 12 and 13, no, 15 and 16, which was 2012 to 2013, um because it was a six-month tour and I could do a 1,000 pretty much when I got there, I just started doing stupid numbers of sit-ups. Like, I was getting in the gym fairly late because it was a busy job, sort of 9 o'clock in the evening, and I was still there doing the same set of sit-ups when the gym shut at 11. Hi. So, um, I started doing sit-ups with a 15-kilo plate on my chest, and I got up to 1,500 with a 15-kilo plate.
0: Without stopping? Yeah.
1: Fucking hell. So, um, I thought, oh, there's got to be a way to do something for charity with, with this, so... Um, I decided I was going to do the whole uh, lunchtime period outside Camp Bastion, doing PFA sit-ups. And anyone could guess how many I was going to do, pay $2, because in Camp Bastion, uh, pick a number between $2,500 and 5000 and five the winning number gets a prize. So one of my mates worked for one of the contractors, give me an iPad as a prize. I've got loads of um, money donated by the big contracting companies. Um. And we raised about four thousand um, dollars from people guessing on on the, on the sort of lottery for it. Um, so I raised about six grand. I did two and a half hours of sit-ups, and yeah, did four thousand two hundred and sixty-seven. Did you? Which equated to ninety-nine PFA passes at my age, because I think it was forty-three sit-ups was a was a pass. Oh,
0: how long did that take?
1: I so said two and a half hours, yeah, one hundred and fifty okay. minutes.
0: You must have been sore after that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the abs though. Like, no, lower back. You're back, yeah. uh, you're back, I just had the thought because I've I've, I've I've had back trouble myself, right? Like, and just the thought of that, like, yeah. oh, God, man.
1: So <laughs> I did a rehearsal two weeks before I put Lash um in in private. Set the stopwatch, did it, and only got about three three thousand five hundred. I thought that's rubbish. So I started doing sprint sessions. You know the big Olympic weights. Right. So from twenty five kilos down to five kilos. Um, so I will pick up the twenty-five kilo, do a hundred as fast as I could, chuck that, have a little break, twenty kilo, hundred as fast as I could, chuck that, fifteen, ten, five, then none. So six hundred sprints of a hundred, or oh, six sprints of a hundred, and um, yeah, I did that three times, and then added about eight hundred onto me, my, my total.
0: Fucking hell, man. Yeah, <laughs> I applaud you. You know, because like I see my back hurting just thinking about that. Like. So, um. Should we start talking about your book? Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, you mentioned it's a little bit about. Um, it's called the Watch List. It's you got the idea from the Manchester mm-hmm. bombing. Do you want to describe it? I yeah, mean, don't um, give too much away because they want to yeah. buy it. If you tell it, yeah. tell what happens in the end. <laughs> L- a lot of
1: people um, think, oh, it's a book about
0: watches, like <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't from, read from it Rolex, about watches, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from, Ro- from Rolexes.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, yeah, so the, the first chapters are scene set, a Big terror incident goes off, like hundreds sort of injured, uh, sixty eight I think is dead. Um, at a time when a, this guy Alex is his ex Royal Signals technical technical guy, and he's doing a contract job um, working for the MOD main server building, and they've got a problem with their new system that's coming online. It won't talk to MI five. It won't talk to Northern Ireland office. Um, And they need a quick fix. So they get this guy, Alex, in and he works on it, supervised by Corporal Lucy Butler. And um, so he works on cracking the solution to get this system working again. And um, whilst he's letting his systems do their searches and filters and all that sort of thing, he starts browsing through the MI5 network because he's got access to it. And he finds this list Zulu and clicks on it and it opens up and it's the UK terror Watch list. Two... 23,000 names of potential terror suspects and he's like bloody hell and um, so yeah he, similar sort of mindset to me he has an idea and yeah. that's it he's off and he's he's going to nick the, the watch list doesn't really know what he's going to do with it um, but he's he happens to see a guy called Craig Medhurst spouting off on Facebook about terrorists and bombs going off and we should do this and we should do that and he's, he's an ex Hereford bloke so he, Alex thinks I'll nick it and I'll take it to him and see what him and his mates want to do with it. And, uh, yeah, so from there they, they come up with a plan on how to take down the worst of the bad guys on the
0: list. All right. That sounds good, man. So I'm not just seeing a crochet. yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was enthralled there. Yeah. Do you think i will get made into a film? I'd or would you say, like? Uh,
1: I'd like it to, definitely. And um, I've already messaged uh, Phil Campion, Big Phil, right. um, on Twitter saying, I've got this book and um, the, the lead character from the SAS is a bit like you so if they make a film do you want to lead, lead uh-huh. it like, yeah <laughs> have,
0: have you not thought of any like um directors that you would
1: oh um yeah I, I think I also tweeted Guy Ritchie as well
0: alright uh-huh. uh, good Guy Ritchie would be good yeah but if you say if you got Tarantino or someone like that they'd just Americanize it wouldn't they yeah. it would be no good
1: yeah it'd be like the um what was it the, the Featherman by Ranulph Fiennes was uh-huh. turned into the killer elite
0: alright uh-huh. um have you wrote any other books?
1: Um, I'm on nine, chapter nine of the second one.
0: And is that a follow-up to this?
1: Yeah, so one of the bad guys that disappears off the radar uh, in the first book. Um, yeah, he's the lead focus for, for the second one. Um, but yeah, I can't really... Cause it's so, no, don't tell us. There's so tell many twists <laughs> <laughs> in the first one. I don't oh, don't no, tell I us too much. much. About. We,
0: um, when's that available to buy, like...
1: Uh, it's on Amazon now, it's been on since the end of November, um, sold about 300 copies so far.
0: So just the people watching this type in the watch list yeah, and it'll you, come up?
1: you touch it, type in the watch list, Joseph Mitchum, and uh, yeah, it'll come up. It's available on Kindle, it's £3.50 on Kindle, if you've got a Kindle Unlimited subscription then it's free, um, or if you want paperback it's £10. And
0: what about uh, Audio.
1: No, I'm looking into that. Uh, it costs you can imagine the, the recording time, and that it, it costs a, a good couple of grand to have a book recorded. And unless my my sales jump massively, it's not going to be cost effective. To mm. I thought about doing crowdfunding though. Um, a few people said they'd chip money, oh. crowdfunding the
0: funny, you should say, crowdfunding. So, this building, uh, I need to buy it. So, um Got a bit of a shock, it got put up for sale just after the day I opened after I'd spent all the money on it. So we've came now to the, the with the landlords, which is a charity called uh, Springboard. Brilliant with us, you know, yeah. and they've they've sort of said, Well, you don't have to buy it, but like because that's happened, it's really worried as, you know, the clients some of the clients were crying and it was it was horrible. So we've decided, well really we need to buy it, so we're gonna do crowdfunding. We're going to try and crowdfund to to pay for this like so we've got a few we have a video by um ross kemp to start it off and um, we and joe our um, media lad from um tile image is going to sort of coordinate a, a proper crowdfunding strategy so i mean I'm, it's all new to me but yeah. hopefully it'll pay off like you know as long as we get enough i mean i'm i, I don't know how it works in time wise but if The charity's watching Springboard. If you can just give us about a year to pay for it, right? <laughs> that would be ideal, you know what I mean? Because that, I mean, 120 grand is a lot of money to me, but a year uh, it would be possible, I suppose. I mean, still 10 grand a month, you know, but we uh, t- yeah. touch wood quietly, though, so I don't bang on the table, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, uh, is there anything else you want to advertise while you're here?
1: No, just um, even if you don't buy the book, uh, if you know people that would be interested then spread the word
0: yeah, yeah. Um, well what I, we what we can do obviously while we'll ties on here but if you send us something that we can put on our page yeah uh, the link to buy it or and a picture or whatever and we put that on our page for you and we'll tweet it and put it on linkedin and uh, instagram as well because right. we have all social media and we've, we've got quite a few followers as well and people are interested you know and it's oh, i'm interested now and i never read yeah. <laughs> but it's i,
1: I I really hope it is the kind of book that can bring people to reading. Cause right. I, I never read books until I picked up The Feathermen by Randolph Fiennes. And I read that and I was like, wow, it's really good use of my time. Right. Um, and it, I think this storyline will hopefully snag a few people and get them into reading.
0: Well, it, it, it's an interesting thing, because you're exactly right, and I don't know if it's just squaddies who would think that, but, like, <laughs> yeah. if you could get that list, you know what I mean? <laughs> it would, would, you know, it's like the golden ticket of uh, Willy Wonka, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right, mate, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and anything you need from us, any help we can give you in the future, just let us know. All right? Lovely, thanks for Thanks it. very much, man. Cheers. Yeah.